Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be kind of all over the place, but you can start there in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we'll kind of jump around. But I am so thankful uh, to be here with you again on another Sunday. Thankful for um, our send-off and an opportunity to celebrate baptisms. Thankful for those that are visiting with us for the first time. Uh, Let me just join Nick and say, welcome. It's good to have you here. We'd love to be able to connect with you. And then let me just say one more thing as we get started. I just love the way that you sing. It so encourages my heart and gets me so excited uh, to get up here and preach, and it's probably more than that, just to be in glory where I don't have to hear my bad voice. I'm going to hopefully get an upgrade, but it is so sweet to be able to sing with you all. Well, let's go before the Lord and ask his blessing as we turn to his word. Join me in prayer, please. Well, Father, we recognize that um, not much will happen here this morning apart from your Spirit's guidance and help and wisdom and conviction. And so we beg of you to come and meet us in a powerful way through the proclamation of your word. Give us greater understanding and insight to your truth. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, Nick had mentioned here that the reason why uh, we, we do our articles is, is really a multitude of reasons. I mean, in one sense, we're kind of catechizing. We're reviewing our doctrinal statement. I think that's healthy. Um, our, our articles and our doctrinal statements, um, it really does help us to identify who we are as a church. And it not only helps us identify who we are as a church, but it also unifies us as a local church. It distinguishes us as a local church, and it distinguishes us from non-Christians. It distinguishes us from cults. It also distinguishes us in the sense that we know that we're not Lutherans or Anglicans or Presbyterians or Pentecostals. We're we're not Roman Catholics. We're not Eastern Orthodox. At Grace Church Monterey Bay, we're Protestants, and we believe that we need to be baptized when we're believers. And that actually is an area of disagreement. Some people don't like that there are so many disagreements among denominations and even among evangelicals. But my answer is that there's disagreements and there's division because there's something that exists which is called doctrine. Doctrine does divide, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be because we can become these kind of separatists and push everyone out to the side but we can also be minimalist and say that doctrine doesn't matter. We don't want to err on either side. And we need to understand that differences over doctrine are not the same thing as differences over decor in our building. And so there are different levels of issues that we need to give focus to and defend and champion. But I would say there's good differences, or there's good reasons for differences. And so you see that in our doctrinal statement. You'll hear that with our ministry philosophy. I think we're unique here. And we're not unique just for the sake of being unique. We're not trying to be innovative or untraditional. What we want to be is biblical. And when you take a stand on the Bible and you begin to formulate and codify your beliefs, it will inevitably divide. And one of those issues where there is a lot of division in the evangelical world is on this topic of baptism. In fact, I think that 
there's quite a bit of disagreement on baptism. And the only thing, used to be anyway, that people agreed upon was the fact that there's water involved. And then that was kind of it. But even now, that has become a subject of debate. But let me just list for you some questions that we need to think through as we come to this topic of baptism. First, there's the question of who should be baptized. Is it for infants? Is it for professing believers? Is it for children? If it is for children, then how old do those children have to be? If you were baptized as an infant, should you be baptized again? Is it really being baptized again if you were baptized as an infant, or is it being baptized for the first time? Should you be baptized if you're a backslider and you've walked away from Christ and come back to Christ and come back to the church? Is it necessary for you to be baptized again? Well, how should you be baptized? Is it by immersion? Is it by pouring? Is it by sprinkling? Is it by something else? Is it really um, something that we need to do in the name of the Lord Jesus? Or is it illegitimate if it's just in the Lord Jesus because it has to be in the Lord Jesus' name and the Father and the Spirit? Can you be virtually baptized? That's actually a question nowadays. See, we gather today physically, but there are people who gather online and gather in the metaverse, and they get virtually baptized. Is that biblical baptism? What about the purpose? What does baptism actually do? Is baptism a sign? Is it a symbol? Does it save? Does it sanctify? Does it seal a believer? Does it do something? Does it do nothing? Does it do everything? There's a lot of questions about baptism. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to examine from the Bible and think through what baptism actually is. Now, if you go on our website or you look in our doctrinal statement, you'll see this under um, Roman numeral 6, the church. This is what we, and it's going to be up here. It's our main idea. And if you don't catch it, you can go online or look at our church documents. This is what we say regarding the church and baptism. Christian baptism by immersion is the solemn and beautiful testimony of a believer showing forth his faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. And his union with him in death to sin and resurrection to a new life, it is also a sign of fellowship and identification with the visible body of Christ. And so we're going to try to take that statement and boil it down by asking three questions and the outline is as follows. We're going to look at the meaning of baptism, the method of baptism, and the motive of baptism. And then as we look at that last point, we're going to discover that we have a master to obey, a message to convey, and a membership to display. So there is where we're going. Let's start off here with the meaning of baptism. And the best way to do that is to describe what it is not. Baptism is not some mere religious ritual it's not just a church tradition. It's not what the reformer John Calvin said, magic or mirage. And what he meant by that is that people make an error of going to one side or the other. They think that it is just some sort of magic and there's some sort of mystical power that comes with the water and that the water actually saves. But he also says you can go the other direction and think that it's just a mirage, that there really is no spiritual significance. We have to avoid both of those errors Look, baptism is also not how someone is saved. There are several people in several churches that teach what's called baptismal regeneration. That is a distortion of the gospel. 
It's adding a work to salvation. We know that because even as we read from Ephesians 2, the Bible is unmistakably clear that the way that we come to faith in Christ is owning to God's grace and not through some work. Baptism is not you earning extra favor with God. And so we have uh, some Roman Catholic friends that are down the street. Maybe you have Roman Catholic family members. They're very sincere in their devotion, but unfortunately they're sincerely wrong when it comes to the issue of baptism. You see, according to Roman Catholic heresy, they believe that water baptism is necessary for salvation. They believe it eradicates original sin, it provides forgiveness of personal sins, it causes regeneration, and it infuses sanctifying grace apart from personal faith. All of which we would say is not only inaccurate, unbiblical, it is dangerous and even damning if you embrace that theology. Baptism is not you making some sort of advanced commitment to Christ. Like you come, you become saved at one point, and then later on as you mature and grow and get disciples and start reading your Bible and memorizing some Awana verses, now it's like, okay, you've matured and stepped up a level, and you progress. You, like Mario Superman, jump up, and now you get baptized. That is not what baptism is. So what is it then? What is the meaning of baptism? Well, look at this definition here. Again, trying to just put it in a concise way as possible, but baptism is a Christian ordinance given by the Lord that is public, symbolic, is a symbolic act which represents an inward spiritual reality and testifies to our union and identification with Christ and his church. All of those words are selected and selected for a very good purpose, but it is an outward picture. It's a spiritual snapshot of what has taken place in your own heart. And to begin to unpack that definition, we begin with this, that baptism is an ordinance. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only two ordinances that the Lord Jesus has given his church to keep until he returns. You see, there are many things that people will say are essential to the church, and a lot of those things that they do and practice and believe are actually not essential, but these two things right here are essential. I would probably even go so far to say that where these two ordinances are not practiced, then you really don't have a New Testament church. The Lord gave us instruction, and we do this quite frequently every other week, and there's even here that say, Dom and Nick, we need to do this every week. The Lord's Supper is us partaking of the bread and the wine or the juice, and we're supposed to do that till he returns. And then the other ordinance is what Jesus commanded in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, making disciples of all nations, teaching them all I command you, and we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, how long do we have to do that? Well, Jesus makes it very clear you do that until the end of the age. So those two ordinances we keep perpetually until Christ comes back. Both of those are not just ordinances to be obeyed, but they're actually, listen to this, they're means of grace by which we're strengthened and we enjoy and delight in Christ until he returns. And so baptism is a command that we're to obey, we're to teach it, we're to practice it until the second coming. But notice that baptism, very important, is for believers, it is a Christian ordinance. It is for those who have placed their trust in Christ, who have repented of their sin, who have confessed him as Lord and Savior. 
And so what we get from that is that belief always precedes baptism. We see this pattern at the very beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost in response to Peter's preaching and teaching. What we see over and over again is this refrain throughout the whole book of Acts is that the word is preached, that people hear, that people understand, that people respond, that people are baptized. So look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Scroll down to verse 41 with your eyes. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is the normal, regular occurrence that we see in Scripture. The word is preached, the message is heard, the message is received, and then right after that, people are baptized. Why? Because faith precedes baptism. Turn on over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. Here we see Philip preaching the word, and verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, what does it say they did? They were baptized, both men and women. We see the same pattern. Uh, they hear Philip preaching the gospel. They believe the gospel, and then they are baptized. Look down at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he proclaimed the good news, the gospel about Jesus to him. This is the Ethiopian. And as they went along the road, they came to water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. You see, it's the same thing. The eunuch hears the message preached, receives the message believes in the Son of God, and in this particular instance, the Holy Spirit is helping apply an Old Testament text of the suffering servant, and this guy realizes, well, I'm lost. I'm dead in my sin. I need to repent and believe. And once he does, he spots water, and he gets baptized. The same thing happens for the Apostle Paul. When we look at his conversion in Acts chapter 9, turn there. Acts chapter 9 and verse 17 there we learn after Paul was converted, it says there that he arose and was baptized. And the fascinating thing about the Apostle Paul and his conversion, his baptism is actually in verse 19. And I don't want to make too much of it, but I do find it significant that Luke adds this. He's baptized and then he took food and was strengthened. What that communicates to me is that after this brother gets saved, the first and most important thing to do is to get baptized, even before making himself a sandwich and being strengthened. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Peter, here taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and we read this in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these things, right, gospel truth, person and work of Christ, need for repentance, it says, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the word, and all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. 
For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and magnifying God. And Peter said to them, Can anyone refuse water for these to be baptized? Look at this. Who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. They hear the word. They respond to the word. The Holy Spirit saves them, regenerates them, gives them newness of life. And what do they do right after? Immediately they are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The church in Philippi, as we've read the book of Philippians, we see the same thing. Look at Acts chapter 16. Acts 16 and verse 14. We're familiar with Lydia. She's from the city of Thyatira. She's a seller of purple. She's a worshiper of God. And what does it say? The Bible says she was listening to the gospel preached by Paul and his ministry associates. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, same pattern. How about the Philippian jailer? Look there at verse 30, same chapter, Acts 16. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? And he didn't start with be baptized. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his household. They took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. And it says in verse 34 there, And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly with the whole household because he had believed in God. You say, Dama, I think I get the picture. You get the picture because this is what the Bible presents. The same formula all throughout. The gospel is preached, people believe it, they receive it, and then they are baptized. Some people will say, well, there's a good argument here because it talks about a whole household being baptized, and maybe that is referring to infants, but I would say that is an argument from silence. There are no babies in those texts. We don't read of one baby or one infant being baptized but, but more than that, if you go back to verse 31 and verse 32, we see that it is belief that brought about salvation for the jailer and for his household. The men who are being baptized this morning are simply telling you what the Lord has already done in their heart. And so we celebrate that together at the waters of baptism. This is why we say baptism is really just the entry point into the new covenant community. So we look at baptism that way and we think of the Lord's Supper as an ongoing covenantal renewal. Both the Lord's Supper and baptism are really a pledge and promise to us that God still saves and sanctifies. So this morning, I'm excited to baptize. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises that when the word is preached, people are saved. Kyle actually came up to me just a little while ago, and he said, hey, as you were praying there, I just realized that happened to me. I came to this church, heard the gospel, received the gospel. I'm saved now, and now I want to be obedient and be baptized. And so baptism, again, is a Christian ordinance that we're commanded to obey until the Lord returns. But listen, it is also a sign or a symbol and the first thing that this symbol expresses is our union with the Father, with the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we'll get back there in the nice warm water, and we're going to dunk them, but we're dunking them in the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit, that Trinitarian formula we, we say because it means something. It signifies that a believer is committed to, sealed with, and blessed by our Trinitarian God. And, and Jesus models this for us when he's baptized by Jordan in the river. The Father spoke a word of affirmation. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit descends as a dove, empowering Jesus for ministry, and the Son receives them both. And in a similar way, our baptism testifies that we are following the word of the Father. We're following in the footsteps and the example of the Son, and we're being led by the Spirit. But secondly, our baptism symbolizes our union with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So it sends a message. There's a picture here. The clearest teaching of this is in Romans chapter 6. You can turn there, you can... Look up on the screen, Romans chapter 6, in verse 3, says this, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. If you're coming to church for the first time and you see us singing these songs and hear us singing songs about death, it sounds very strange. But yet it's something that we glory in because when Christ died, we died. Died to sin. Died to our old way of life. Died to our autonomy. And when we go down into the baptism waters, it is a symbol. Just like at Jake and Nicole's wedding. They, they had a ring, and the ring itself, it is simply a symbol. It's not their love, it's not their commitment, but it's signifying both of those things before their witnesses and before God, and that's the same thing we'll see today as baptism symbolizes this union with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, this union by dying the same death that, that Christ died and being raised to newness of life you see, baptism dramatically portrays what happens spiritually when you receive Christ. Your old self of unbelief, rebellion, idolatry, it died, and then a new you sprang forth, one of faithfulness and submission and treasuring Christ. That's what we confess in the waters of baptism. But thirdly, baptism also symbolizes spiritual cleansing. So just like regular water cleanses our physical bodies, when we enter into the waters of baptism, it's symbolic of what has already taken place. Our whole spiritual bodies have been cleansed. We come up out of the water, and for everyone here watching, we say, that's someone who's been transformed. That's someone who's new. And we hold you to that as we walk together in faith. But it's not just that. The newness of life, it is a promise that as Christ rose from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. And so when Paul says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ defeated both death and hell. And so there is no more sting. And we do have victory in Christ. So we, uniting ourselves with the death of Christ, we're plunged into the waters, we're raised up, and we're raised dripping with newness of life. I love what Galatians 2.20 says. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and, you finish it, gave himself for me. We think totally submerging someone under the water and raising them up from under the water is the most natural way to understand the symbolism of being buried in death and being raised from the grave. So we feel strongly that the Bible is clear that baptism always precedes, um, our, sorry, faith always precedes our baptism, and it is a symbol that unites us to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That is why if you call yourself a Christian, you must be baptized. F.F. Bruce states this strongly when he says, the idea of an unbaptized Christian, he writes, is simply not entertained in the New Testament. But now let's ask this question. There's the meaning. What about the method? How is a Christian baptized? And this has been debated for centuries, millennial. In fact, many denominations have created, we've been created and split over how we're baptized. Is it immersion? Is it pouring? Is it sprinkling? And let me just be brief here. The reason why we do it the way that we do, the reason why we say it's submerging is because that's what the word actually means. Baptizo is where we get our English word baptize, and it literally means to dip, to plunge, to immerse. So it has the idea of a full submersion. Even in secular Greek, when you read other writings, we see that it's talking about sunken ships, it's talking about drowning, or it's talking about food that is fully seeped in a broth. It's also worth noting that there are other words that the New Testament writers could have used, but they didn't. Ratizo means sprinkling. That is not used for Christian baptisms. Epikeo is for pouring. That is not used when we come across baptisms. Those words, not only are they not used, but these are extra-biblical things that came on much later and have no biblical origin. A second reason why we baptize by immersion is because it is the only type of baptism that is found in the New Testament. The descriptions of baptism in the New Testament suggest that people went down into the water. Let me just briefly show you this. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, And they were being baptized by him, that's John, in the Jordan River. And again, prepositions become extremely important. We're not making this up. It's from the text. After Jesus' baptism, he's described as coming up out of the water. We're given this intriguing detail by the amount of water in John's gospel. In John chapter 3, it says, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. He didn't go find a bunch of water to scoop it up in a cup and to pour it or to sprinkle it. He went to find a bunch of water because he wanted to submerge people. Similarly, in Acts chapter 8, we read, and we, we saw this earlier, Philip and the eunuch, they go down into the water and they come up out of the water. And just a third reason why we baptize by immersion is because most scholars, as you investigate church history and you look at church architecture and baptismals, they created it so that the whole body can be dunked and brought up. Why again? Because it's communicating the reality of what's taking place. All of us dies. All of us is resurrected and we looked at the meaning, we looked at the method. What is it? What, how should we do it? Now let's answer this last question, which is, what is the motive? Why should we be baptized? 
And we'll answer it just three simple ways. Why should you be baptized? Because we have a new master to obey. We have a message to convey. And we have a membership to display. We'll start with we have a new master to obey. The beautiful thing about baptism is that it not only pictures the good news of forgiveness and cleansing and justification and sanctification and glorification, it it communicates all those things, but it also perfectly pictures that you and I are no longer slaves to sin, that we have a new master, that we're actually slaves to righteousness now. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and we've been transferred over to the kingdom of light. And the Bible tells us that when we trust Christ for salvation, that we actually become a new creation. All of our fleshly identities, our nationality, our ethnicity, our familial, our educational, our economic identity, all those things don't change. I'm still 6'2", I'm still Hispanic. But what once ruled our identity is now relativized. So American, Mexican, white, black, conservative, rich, poor, college grad, high school dropout, all those things take a back seat and they're superseded by our identity now in Christ. This is why we say that baptism is more than just a sign. In a real and significant way, it's actually a seal. And the Bible uses this terminology, a seal. It just basically means it's, it's ownership. It's our identity. The name Christian, listen, it means something. We're not just people who follow Jesus. You and I are actually his possession. He has taken hold of us. He owns us. He is our master. We are his slaves. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. I love the way that Paul jam-packs so much truth in just these two verses. Ephesians 1 and verse 13. Paul writes this, In him, already theologically significant, you also, after listening to the message of truth, just for clarity, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You see all those significant words? Seal, promise, pledge, inheritance, possession. All of them are talking about our identity now in Christ. It was the early Christians that often compared the seal of baptism to the branding of an animal, or the mark of a slave, or even the regimental tattoo of a Roman soldier. Some of you guys got Marines and Navy and Army and Boy Scouts. I don't know. (laughs) But we're proud, and we put it on our bodies. Well, that's what the Lord does to us. In baptism, as it were, that is our ink. But it's not tattoo ink. It's God's stamp on you, mine. I own you. I possess you. But listen, the seal of baptism, it not only pictures the transfer of ownership, but it also suggests certain demands. So sheep are supposed to follow the shepherd. Slaves are supposed to obey the master. Soldiers must be ready to fight and die for the cause. 
And with every command, the beauty of the Bible is that it comes with a promise. And so the good shepherd cares for his own, for his sheep. And the good master loves his slaves and treats his slaves well. The good general provides for his troops. So let me just ask you, have you given evidence of the sealing through water baptism? Or is it something that you keep just putting off and putting off and putting off? The Bible tells us that failure to be obedient to baptism, it is a serious sin. You know there's two types of sins, sins of omission and sins of commission. Okay, There's things that you do, you commit, that are out of step, out of line with God's word and God's will. But there's also things that we just avoid and things that we don't do, things we don't make time to do. MacArthur, in a sermon way back in the 80s, he gave five reasons why a person who professes Christ would not be baptized. And he says it might be due to ignorance, it might be due to indifference, it might be pride, it might be defiance, and it might just be that you're unregenerate. Let me ask you, if you're a believer and you've yet to be baptized, why? Why are you pushing this off? Do you need more teaching? Well, hopefully this helps. But if you need a conversation, let's talk. Are you not baptized because you're too proud? Maybe embarrassed? Are you apathetic? Are you being willingly disobedient and not obeying God's command? Maybe you're not truly a believer. There makes no sense for you to want to be baptized if the Spirit is not moving and stirring your heart to obey God's command. But I'm so encouraged that these three brothers, out of their own initiative, we're not just wanting to be baptized, but we're aggressive, wanting to communicate the gospel. I know it's a fearful thing to stand up and speak in front of people, but that actually keeps people from getting baptized. And I would just say, considering all that Christ has done for you, you can't get up and say what he's done for you. So I'd encourage you, if this is something that you've put off, that you're not thinking about, to come and talk to us, I'm not trying to spank you or guilt you, but if you are a genuine believer, this is what genuine believers do. So we have a master to obey, but finally we have a message to, I'm sorry, we have a message to convey. This is point two. The Christian life is about giving witness to the greatness of our Savior and telling the world both in word and works that Christ is worthy. When you open up the book of Acts, I'm not sure if you're aware, but Acts is really Yes, the spirit, yes, the, the, the expansion of the church, the, the health of the church, but the book of Acts is really a compilation of sermons. Did you know this? One out of five verses, you're going to have some sort of gospel truth coming at you by way of sermon or by way of works. Beginning with the day of Pentecost, the apostles, they stand up. Look at uh, Acts chapter 2 again and verse 14. It says there, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, what does he do? He raises his voice and declares to them, and then he begins to preach, showing how God's word through the prophets have come to pass. In verse 17, Peter preaches the gospel. He reads, he explains the word of God, and I want you to notice that Peter's sermons are grounded in what the Old Testament said, what the Old Testament promised. And so he quotes Joel, and he quotes David, and he quotes the Psalms, and he's preaching about the resurrection, and he's preaching Christ's divinity, and he's preaching about Christ's lordship. And what I want to say to you is that it's not just preachers that do that. 
It's not just apostles that do that. But these three brothers, when they get baptized, they have a responsibility to continue this very message. Peter was so Christ-centered in his preaching. Look at verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Look at verse 33. Therefore, Having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. And verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Let me tell you, landmark decision the other day. Fantastic. But you realize how people hate that, right? And behind all of that is our understanding of God and the gospel and the Bible and what's the authority. Will you have the boldness and the courage to stand up and tell people that they need to repent? In verse 37, chapter 2, Peter commands that his listeners repent of their sin and turn to Christ. Verse 39, he reminds his audience of God's promises And he pleads with them to repent. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this crooked generation. Not only that, but Peter, he's a Calvinist. How do I know that? Because look at, he says, The sovereign call in verse 39. As the Lord our God will call to himself. Before the foundation of the world you were called. That's what the Bible teaches. Acts chapter 3. Peter's preaching after healing a lame man. He stresses to the large crowd that gathered that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Peter preached that. The suffering and death of Christ upon the cross was a substitute for our sins in verse 14 of chapter 3. Peter also announced that there's an approaching final judgment. He says, And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. In Acts chapter 4, he stands before the Sanhedrin, the 70 rulers, and he testifies, There is salvation in no other name. You say, Dom, why are you going through the book of Acts? Because you and I do not sit here with God's word justified unless people are faithful to preach this very gospel. Even if it means imprisonment. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. And then they say this, both Peter and John For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. And all throughout the book of Acts, 
Acts chapter 6, the word is being preached. Stephen preaches it in Acts chapter 7. Philip in Acts chapter 8. Paul is converted in Acts chapter 9. And the rest of the book of Acts is just preaching the gospel. Listen, baptized believers, this is what we've been commissioned to do. You might be an engineer, you might be a plumber, you might be a school teacher, you might be a stay-at-home mom. It doesn't matter if you are a baptized Christian, this is your main occupation. The gospel message is scripture-saturated, it's Christ-centered, it's heart-piercing, it's repentance-demanding, it's sovereignty-declaring, it's prophecy-fulfilling, it's cross-heralding, it's judgment-warning, and it is world-defying. So we have a master to obey, a message to convey, and finally, a membership to display. And I'll just say this, your salvation is personal. God, before the foundation of the world, called you. The Holy Spirit convicted you. You personally responded, but it's not private. It's public, and we go public, and that's what we're about to do. Let's pray. Lord, your word is very clear. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before him, before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Lord, it is certainly true that this is not a private affair, but we are being baptized, baptized into a family. And these brothers, they're committing themselves, not just to you, Lord, but to the care of the elders here and to the believers here. And so, Father, we're thankful for this local body of believers. We trust, God, that you are moving in such a way that you're bringing about greater um, Christ-likeness in these men. We're so thankful for their humility. We're thankful for their, um, their eagerness. We're thankful for their courage and boldness. But most of all, God, we're thankful for the salvation work that you've accomplished in their heart. This truly is a miracle, Lord, bringing them to the place of faith and repentance and treasuring Christ above all things. And Father, while each man will get up and share their testimony, we feel the weight of responsibility as they become members of our church to be faithful to disciple, to shepherd, to encourage, to use our gifts, and to allow them to use their gifts for the building up of this body. And so, Lord, would you please receive all the glory for the great work that you've done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.